0: We've had uh, some interruptions the last few weeks in our study. And for those of you who are my age or older, I know you're confused right now. (laughs) Your mind is blank. You have no idea where we're at. Well, we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, let me set the scene as we start here. Jesus... uh, just finished his Sermon on the Mount. And in coming down from the mountain, he's immediately confronted by an outcast in Jewish society, a leper. Then after leaving the leper, he enters the town of Capernaum, and he's immediately approached there by an outcast of a different sort, a Gentile, not only a Gentile, but a Roman, not only a Roman, but a Roman soldier. In the Jewish mind, uh, these two were the lowest of lows. Dirty, vile human beings. And yet, uh, Jesus engaged both of them. The leper was untouchable, and it says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. The Roman was uh, hated and despised, and yet Jesus was willing to not only help him, but to go into his home. Unthinkable in the Jewish mind. And there's a huge statement here I don't want to miss. By his involvement with and concern for these two outcasts, Jesus was living out what the people had just heard from his own lips. He was, you might say, walking the talk. You see, the Jews had fallen into a dark abyss of uh, externalism. It was what you were on the outside. What you did, how you dressed, what you said that determined your standing and righteousness both before God and man. The Jew had little concern for the hearts. And Jesus challenged this thinking over and over and over again in his three-year ministry, beginning with a sermon that he had just delivered. Jesus wasn't and still isn't concerned with religious dogma. He was and still is concerned with people. He's not concerned with their status He's not concerned with their race or with their power. Each each person, each individual person has value in his eyes. He sees sees through the outward and and into the inner heart. And in the passage before us today, he responds to that inner heart. Not to rank or standing. So let's take a look at our passage. There are two accounts... uh, of this incident in the Bible, one and here in uh, chapter 8 of Matthew and the other in uh, Luke chapter 7, Luke, uh, the Luke passage is a bit more detailed, so I thought I'd read that to you just to get a feel for it. Luke 7, 1 uh, through 10. When he had completed all his discourse and the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us, our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house... The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. I I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So here in the Luke passage, we see that the centurion came to Jesus by a delegation of Jewish leaders. Not personally. And we'll go into the reasons why in a few minutes. Let's look at who this man was. He was a, he was a centurion. A centurion was a soldier who was in charge of uh, about 100 men. He had the rank uh, equivalent to, say, a present-day army captain. And it was his responsibility... To um, keep peace and order in the district to which he was assigned. And you did not achieve this rank by being a weak, inexperienced soldier. On the contrary, a centurion was seasoned, tough, and battle trained. This was one tough guy. And it's interesting to note that despite this rugged nature, whenever a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, personally mentioned in the New Testament, it is often in a favorable light. For example, we not only have the centurion in this passage, but we have the centurion at the cross, at the foot of the cross, who cried out, truly this was the Son of God. And then we have a centurion named Cornelius, who became a believer through the testimony of Peter in Acts chapter 10. I think there's a clear message here as well by by taking some of the most hated of all Gentiles and putting them in a, a favorable light as illustrations of goodness and faith, Jesus is proclaiming to all that his kingdom will go beyond the Jewish people to all the peoples of the world. A proposition that the uh, Jews just weren't able to accept. Now, in either uh, Matthew or Luke, are we told the centurion's name? But we do know a few things about him. Uh, we do know that he owned slaves. And in the Roman world, slaves were nothing but things, chattels, property. Uh, to do with and dispose of as any other piece of property. It didn't matter if he lived or died, if he's no longer useful, get rid of him. Gaius, the Roman law expert at the time, wrote, it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over his slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Vero, who wrote at the time, another Roman writer once wrote, the only difference between a slave and a beast is that the slave talks. Now clearly the centurion in our passage did not hold to this view. Instead he was a man of compassion and tenderness for he loved his slave. He was not just just a piece of property but he was a Valuable member, a beloved member of the centurion's household. A beloved friend who was lying paralyzed, fearfully tormented, and about to die. And it was this heart of compassion that forced the centurion into action on this day. Now, besides this heart of compassion, we also know that the centurion was deeply involved in the the Jewish community. In the Luke passage, uh, elders came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. So you ask yourself, why? Why would they publicly support an outcast in Jewish society, and particularly a Roman occupier? Listen to their words. He is worthy of you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So deeply was their regard for the centurion, it says that they earnestly implored Jesus to grant his request. So this was no half hearted effort. They truly loved this man. After all, he had used his own funds to build them in their synagogue. He had seen a need and he responded in generosity. And no doubt this rugged seasoned soldier had found solace in the Jewish faith. He may well have accepted the tenets of Judaism. So we see a man of compassion. We see a man of generosity coming to Jesus for help. But beyond all of this we see a man with deep humility. Remember, this was a man of prestige and power, a man of authority. He was a tough, seasoned centurion who would never go to a Jew for help. Never. So for our centurion even to come, and to come on behalf of a slave, no less, took a degree of humility unheard of in that day. And I will venture to say that he had more humility than was seen in our disciples, Lord's own. So humble was the centurion that he would not even come to Jesus himself. Now let's stop for a second. If you were a person of prestige and power, wouldn't you go in person? to demonstrate to Jesus that this was not just an ordinary request, that you were a somebody who deserved his attention, a somebody entitled to special treatment. That's certainly the world's way, isn't it? But not so for our centurion. He proclaimed, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to come to you. And then he further proclaimed that he was not even worthy that Jesus should come to him. He said, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Here was a man who recognized both his unworthiness to receive and his unworthiness to give. He was empty, having nothing of his own. This is an important truth for us to understand. We as believers have no merit of any kind, nor will we ever have any. In fact, we are much more sinful than we can ever imagine. We are much more unworthy than we can ever think. We are poor and hopelessly bankrupt. And it's this sense of our our own unworthiness that drives us to Jesus, isn't it? Our bankrupt heart should act as wings to bear us to the Savior's door. That's why we bow down before the throne. We're totally unworthy apart from Christ. We have no hope. Therefore, we have nothing to be proud of. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to give. The Apostle Paul called himself I am the chief of all sinners. Paul was not pleased with what he had been, nor was he pleased at what he was, apart from Christ. So is there any other path for us than the path of humility? Is there any place in our, heart, our lives for proud hearts? If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to know Him, humility should be our clothing. Humility should be the road we take. And it's this road of humility that should not only come from our sense of unworthiness, but from a deep conviction of who Jesus is. The centurion understood this. He called Him Lord. Lord, God Almighty, the Eternal One. This he understood. And he knew he was nothing before the king of kings and lord of lords. Like Isaiah, when before the throne of God, cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. The centurion knew who he was. And who Jesus was. Look at what he says in verse 9. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. You see, as a soldier, you understand two things. He understood two things. The chain of command and the authority of the word of command. A soldier has an absolute obligation to follow orders regardless. He is under the authority of the one in command, and the one in command requires and demands that his orders be fulfilled. Why? Because he's in command. Implicit, therefore, in what the centurion said to Jesus was his recognition of the authority of Jesus. Jesus. As Lord, He is the commander of all things. He's the ruler to whom all must obey. And that's why He says, Say it. Say it, Lord, and it will be done. So here we have a Gentile soldier who is compassionate, he's giving, and he's humble, who believes in the Lordship of Christ, coming before the king and pleading for the life of his servants. And that's why Jesus says, I marvel at his faith. The word used here is, means to, to wonder, to admire. That same word is used uh, and is attributed to Jesus in one other setting. And that's in Mark chapter 6. Only this time Jesus did not marvel at their faith but marveled at their lack of faith. Jesus had just returned to his uh, hometown of Nazareth and he had finished teaching in the synagogue and it says that the people rejected him, that that they took offense at him. Why? Because they did not see him as Lord, but as one of them, as a mere carpenter, as, as a son of Mary. So no matter what Jesus said, no matter what miracle he performed, they were not gonna be persuaded. They had made up their minds. And it says in that passage that he wondered at their lack of faith. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter eight. He wondered. Why did he wonder? Because he had grown up in their midst. He had lived with them for almost 30 years. These were his lifelong friends and neighbors, and yet, had they not seen, had they not observed, did they ever once see him sin, lie, cheat, speak wrongly of of another? Had they seen nothing of his lordship in all those years? Despite what had been so obvious in their midst for so long, they refused to believe, and that's why Jesus marveled. He marveled at how quickly they had turned against him once he revealed who he was. And in his humanity, Jesus was puzzled, and rightly so. So let's get back to our passage. What's so amazing about the centurion's faith? Why did Jesus marvel? What is amazing faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is being certain or assured of things we cannot see, of things that we cannot behold with the eyes things we cannot touch things we cannot hold things we cannot feel for example further on in chapter 11 of hebrews it says that by faith noah being warned about god by god about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for salvation of his household And then Abraham, by faith, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Do you remember Thomas? After he was told of the resurrection, what he said? He said, Well, I'll believe when I see. And when he saw, he believed. And what did Jesus say about this newfound belief of Thomas? He said, because you have seen, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Paul says, we live by faith, not by sights. Do You see the contrast that Paul's making here? If we live by sight only, we cannot have faith. Faith does not see, it simply believes. Listen to what Peter says in uh, first, first Peter chapter one. And though you have not yet seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Outcome of what? Outcome of your sightless faith. Let's go back to our centurion. There's absolutely no evidence that he had seen Jesus. In fact, it was so early in Jesus' ministry that the odds are he had not personally encountered Jesus. Nor had he ever been in person when Jesus performed one of his miracles. But he had heard. And what he had heard had pricked his soul. He became certain of what he had not seen. He believed that which his eyes had not beheld. Unlike Thomas, he didn't need Jesus to come. He didn't need to see Jesus. He was certain in his heart, and that was enough. So what was the centurion certain about. Three things that are absolutely essential to faith. To amazing faith. But before I begin, I want to make one point. All I'm about to say is predicated on the premise that faith flows from a heart of humility. A heart of dependence. An understanding that we have nothing to give and nothing to offer. Nowhere In the centurion do we see pride. Nowhere do we see pride in who he was before God or man. In his own words, he described his own unworthiness. Such is the heart of faith. It begins with humility. What then is amazing faith? Number one is absolute confidence in the authority and lordship of Christ. Every soul, every soul on earth puts their faith in something. They either believe in themselves, they may trust in government, philosophy, nature, or someone they admire. They may even trust in a false religion. And some even A false Jesus. But faith alone, faith in something is not enough. It's the object of our faith that makes for true faith. Unless faith is based on truth, it is a worthless faith. Is good for nothing but a false assurance, an assurance that will ultimately lead to disappointment and despair. Our centurion called Jesus Lord. He understood who he was, he understood that all authority, all authority was bestowed in Jesus. Jesus was God, the sovereign God of the universe, who controlled all things, visible and invisible. Jesus had absolute authority, and the centurion was certain of it. And in Jesus was his hope. And in Jesus alone was he willing to place the life of his beloved servants. Over and over again, in Scripture, Jesus reveals his deity, doesn't he? He says many times, I and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. Says John as he begins his gospel. Why would John begin his gospel with such a proclamation? Because the deity and authority of Christ is absolutely essential to faith. Like the Soterian, we must believe in the lordship and we must believe in the authority of Christ. We must be certain of it, because without that confidence, there can be no true faith. Point number two, amazing faith is absolute confidence in the power of Christ. There's no hesitation in the centurion's voice when he uttered, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He was absolutely confident that Jesus had the power to heal. A power so great that the spoken word that was all that was necessary. A word from Jesus was sufficient. Jesus did not need to be present. He did not need to perform some ritual. He did not even need to touch the servant. Just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. 56 times in the Bible, the word almighty appears, and is never used for anyone but God. Only God is almighty. The word almighty means all power. All power belongs to God. That is, his power is absolute, and his power is infinite. Nothing is too hard or difficult for God. In fact, all acts of God are done without effort, He expends no energy that needs to be replenished. Tozer writes, all the power required to do all things that he wills to do lies in his own infinite being. All power belongs in him. This is never so evident than in the truth. God speaks and is done. He created the world from Nothing by simply speaking it into existence. He spoke and the the storm ceased. He spoke and and a dead man rose. He spoke and the demons fled. How is this possible? With God, nothing is impossible. And our centurion knew that to be true. Look again at what he says in verse 9. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, he comes, and, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Nothing could stand against the spoken word of Rome. Likewise, nothing can stand against the spoken word of Jesus. He will always accomplish his will, always, and nothing can stand against it. He speaks, and it is done. Sometimes uh, I think we look at our circumstances and we wonder if it's too hard even for Jesus, that things are too hopeless even for him? As the Apostle Paul said in many of his epistles, may it never be. How can we doubt the one who raised the dead? How can we question the one who calmed the storm? How can we doubt the one who healed the sick? Whatever you're facing today. Jesus is more than able. Believe it. Trust it. That's faith. Believing in the power of the one you cannot see. Yet the one who is there. One who is at your right hand. Always. Always. And forever. Forever. So amazing faith, being certain of the lordship and authority of Jesus and having absolute confidence in his mighty power. But there's one more important and foundational facet of amazing faith, absolute confidence in the goodness of Christ. The psalmist declares, how great is your goodness, O Lord, and such it is. Over and over again in Scripture, we see the goodness of God revealed, don't we? That's because God can't help but be good. That's who he is. Goodness just flows from his being, always and without measure, free and boundless. His goodness predisposes him to be kind and tenderhearted and benevolent, sympathetic full of goodwill. One author wrote, The penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. It is out of his goodness that we experience mercy and grace. Mercy is God's goodness withholding deserved judgment upon the guilty. While grace is God's goodness bestowing benefits upon the undeserving, upon those who have no merit or claim to it. Neither mercy or grace exists apart from God's goodness. So what does God's goodness have to do with faith? What does God's goodness have to do with faith? Let's go back to our centurion. He came to Jesus with his need. Why did he come? Well, he knew that Jesus was Lord. He knew that Jesus had the power to heal. But was that enough? Is it possible to present our needs before a God who is cruel and heartless? who could care less about our burdens, about our suffering, about our tears, what would be the use? But this wasn't the Jesus. This wasn't the Jesus whom the centurion had heard. On the contrary, the stories coming to him were of a compassionate healer, of a comforter, of a man of care, generous and kind. And based on these accounts, there was no hesitation, no question in his mind that Jesus was good and merciful and gracious. He was certain of it. Notice how the centurion brought his need to Jesus. He didn't ask. He didn't ask Jesus to heal his servant. He merely presented his problem before Jesus. My servant is dying. He didn't have to ask. Why? Because he had complete confidence in the goodness of God. He had the complete confidence in the goodness of God to understand the need and the goodness of God to respond to the need. Let's pause a second here to have absolute confidence in the goodness of God does not mean that your prayer is going to be answered the way you like every time. This is where we sometimes stumble in our faith. If God is good, why doesn't he heal me? If God is good, why did He take my loved one? Doesn't he see my circumstances? Why doesn't he fix it? It's here where our faith in God's goodness is tested. Do we truly believe God is good even when things are difficult? Even when we suffer? Did Abraham doubt God's goodness when he was told to sacrifice his own son? Did Joseph doubt doubt God's goodness when he was sold into slavery by his family or when he was tossed in prison for a crime he didn't commit? Did David doubt God's goodness when he hid in the wilderness from King Saul or fled from the forces of his own son? Did Paul doubt God's goodness when his prayer for healing was denied? Did Jesus... Doubt God's goodness when he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Although we will struggle at times and question God's goodness. Although we may cry out like David, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Why, O God, have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? At times, I know I have. I've cried out like David. But we must never lose hope in God's goodness. David in his groanings never lost hope. He knew that whatever God had planned for his life, it was good, flowing out of his goodness. God's goodness is an umbrella over our lives that seeks only our good. So what does that mean, seeks only our good? If God doesn't heal my child, if God doesn't save my marriage, if God doesn't reward my honesty with good results, what am I to think? How can He want only my good? We live in a fallen world where there is death and evil and heartache. God hasn't chosen to take, out, take us out of the world, we will always, always suffer from the curse of sin. But God, out of his goodness, has promised to be with us every moment. To extend his right hand in time of, of need. To embrace us through our tears. To comfort us in our pain. He understands our despair. And he will always love us through it. He fills us with a peace unknown to the world. A peace so great that it passes all human understanding. That is God's goodness. That is God's goodness. And if we doubt that truth, we will never know the joy of living in faith. Charles Spurgeon, a great English preacher in the 1800s, 1800s, said this. We must never tolerate an instance unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain. God is good. Amazing faith. It's all around us. Not only in the church at large, but right here in the body here at IBC. So what I want to do is end with some personal testimonies of people in our midst who have suffered and are suffering hardship and heartache. Many tears have been shed by these people, and yet they stand steadfast in their faith. Faith in the power and goodness of the one they call Lord, Savior. And I do this uh, with their consents. I want to first start with... uh, person in our body named Jan Stanton. The miracle lady. I'm going to go over a list of her problems she's had in life. She's uncomfortable with me doing that. Because she doesn't like to focus on her problems. She likes to focus on God. But let me tell you a little about Jan. Jan was raised by abusive alcoholic parents. She had diabetes at six. She had to learn to care for her own health at six. She's got uncontrollable diabetes. She has loss of eyesight. She's got painful neuropathy. She lost her only child. She has kidney failure. She's had transplant. She's had six cancers. She's now on hemodialysis and repeated, she has repeated sepsis. She also recently suffered a stroke. Let me read what Jan says. I survived a very rough childhood and, and multiple health issues. And the first things I want to tell you is that God is good and full of mercy. After all the health things that go on in my life, God still gives me the ability to get up in the morning, to walk, see, hear, have taste buds, and have some energy. I'm spoiled by his loving kindness. He continues to reveal himself to me and and he continues to reveal me to myself. God is faithful and continues to glorify himself in what he allows for each of his children. We all have an opportunity to glorify God. And God is faithful to keep what he has promised for us. Next testimony is from a man named Dan Hendrickson. Some of you know Dan, Dan's been deeply involved and committed to the work at uh, Olympic Christian School. I remember uh, several months ago Dan called me and said, George I got some good news and bad news. It says the bad news is I have have ALS. The good news is I get to share through my ALS the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who don't know, ALS is called Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a disease in which the muscles literally waste away due to the death of nerve cells that control them. It affects limb function, breathing, speaking, swallowing, and other motor functions. It progressively worsens. It progressively worsens in severity. It's 100% fatal. With most patients dying within three years of diagnosis, usually from respiratory failure. It's an ugly, ugly disease. And yet Dan writes this. I was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, in late May of this year. I was in shock. Then the Lord revealed to me that this terrible disease should be used for his glory. Heaven has always been a prize. But but the journey there, with God's help, is being used to show the gospel. And the peace I have in the goodness of God until I go to be with Jesus. He daily comforts me, and I am encountered with everyone, with whom encouraged with, with everyone with whom I'm able to share the gospel. They know what I'm going through, but I share with them the hope and joy that is at the other end of my journey. Truly God is good, as he comforts and supports me at this time. Next person is a dear friend of mine named Barb Wilson. Barb, as of late, has had a tough go of things. And she's uh, always remained faithful and joyful. Let me read what she writes. I wanted to share with you a little bit of my journey. I've been a follower of Jesus since I was a little girl. My mom and stepdad grounded us in faith and the word of God as truth. Beginning when I was 52, over a span of five years, I walked through a divorce after 33 years of marriage, losing my job of 33 years, and having a stroke, which affected the dominant side of my body. Many dark, dark days during those times, but also treasures of God's goodness. Isaiah 45.3 says, "'I will give you hidden treasures, "'riches stored in secret places, so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. The treasures came through my family, family by blood, and the blood of Jesus. Surrounding me with love, and they're listening as I propose, process what was happening. Scripture coming to mind, reminding me in the middle of the night of the faithfulness of God throughout history. Dear friends sharing devotionals and reading the word to me each day while I was in the hospital. Visits, meals, financial help, even cleaning my bathroom. The list of blessings go on. Many treasures showing me how precious I am to the one true God, the great I am, creator of everything out of nothing. I ponder a lot of times as King David prayed, who am I, Lord, and my family that you would bless? It's because of Jesus. It's nothing I've done or not done. It's because Jesus gave his life on the cross in my place. Believing in Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose again, does not mean we will have a life of ease. It means that we may have confidence and hope. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He sees our struggles and tears. He hears our crying out in anger and frustration, in pain and anguish. He knows it all. And he waits, ever the gentleman, for the invitation to come into our mess. And finally, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Don and Ernie Covington lost their daughter Jana a little over a year ago. And it was tough. And this is what Ernie writes. God shows us goodness, mercy, and grace in many ways. He gave me a night vision while our daughter Jana was battling cancer. Let me just pause there a second. Jana became a believer when she was diagnosed with cancer. And for three years, she was a strong, strong believer in Christ. The result of his goodness and grace was a letter to her I wish to share. So Ernie writes this letter to Jana concerning his vision. Dear Jana, I had a vision last night that I wanted to share with you a lawn of clearest green trimmed to the purest perfection set a bed, and on it the whitest linen and silk. There you were, dressed in white, propped up by pillows like billowing clouds. There was a white picket fence where rose bushes of every color and every hue were blooming in their fullness and beauty, a display from the hand of God himself. Through the fence... A faint breeze. A heavenly scent surrounded you, filling your being with wonder. Oh, how heavenly it seemed. As you reached out to touch a golden bloom, at that very minute, Jesus reached down and took your hand and said, Come now, and enter my rest, dear sister. You have done well here, but I have much to show where you will reside with me forever. And so is my vision. Of course, we are praying that that day will be far in the future. But nevertheless, when the hour comes, you in an instant will be in paradise, be in the paradise that was lost with Adam's sin. Oh, what a day that will be. Love you, sweet Jana, Dad. So I want to end uh, with a passage of Scripture. This is out of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose hearts, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So let's bow in prayer, shall we? Lord, we believe. We believe in your deity. We believe you are God. We believe that all authority is bestowed upon you. And we believe that you have all power, the power to do all things, the power to accomplish that which is impossible to understand. And Lord, we believe that you are good, that you are full of goodness, that goodness just flows from your being. So help us, Lord, help us to be, remain steadfast in our faith. Help us to not be distracted by the things of the world. And Lord, we just praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.